Well then, with a view to God's help, let's turn again then to Exodus 12. And at the end of verse 11, we find the statement that this meal that they are keeping is the Lord's Passover. Of course, it becomes later the Lord's Supper, at least in a form. But here it is called the Lord's Passover. And that text is functioning essentially just as a, an umbrella text to take in these two or three services in connection with the Passover itself. And, uh, of course, we're looking really at God's uh, judgment and his mercy, which are both there mingled whenever he is saving. We're looking at his judgment and mercy as it's revealed in the event of the Exodus itself. And we've seen over the past few weeks how his judgment <laughs> came upon the unbelievers. It came upon Egypt first, it came upon Egypt's gods, and then it came upon <coughs> Pharaoh himself, the king of Egypt. And last week we began to look at God's mercy, which of course is towards his own people, and it comes here in the Exodus in the form of the Passover. And effectively that is telling us that Israel are saved because of God's provision for them. It is always the Lord who provides the lamb that came through when Abraham discovered the lamb which would take Isaac's place. The Lord himself will provide a lamb, or he will provide a lamb for himself. And that reminds us that this Passover lamb here is effectively a substitutionary lamb. The lamb takes the place of Israel's firstborn, or even the place of Israel herself as a firstborn nation. And therefore, when the angel of death and judgment passes through Egypt, it passes over the houses of God's people, and they are, of course, safe. Now, as we saw last week, the Lamb obviously represents the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God. It's one of uh, the Apostle John's most frequently used descriptive terms for Christ, particularly, of course, in the book of the Revelation, where he uses it, I think, 28 times. So the Lamb here represents the Lamb of God, who, of course, takes away the sin of the world. That was how John the Baptist announced him on the 10th day, at the beginning of his ministry, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And although we would have guessed anyway, in the light of the rest of Scripture, that this Lamb represents Christ, the Apostle Paul puts it out of any doubt. When writing to the Corinthians, he says that Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. He is telling us how to approach the Lord's Supper. And in that connection, he says that Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. I'll come to that, uh, perhaps God willing, next Lord's Day. Now in the light of what John the Baptist says there, behold the Lamb of God, and in the light of what Peter says, we're striving to do the same thing and to behold this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who can of course take away your sin too if you will come to this offering yourself. Now, last week, we looked at the Lamb prepared. Not just prepared from the foundation of the world, but we saw him selected in his life and in his ministry. We saw him set apart and examined, ready to be the Lamb offered. That was the Lamb meticulously prepared. Tonight, I want to turn with you to the actual offering of the Lamb itself. And the word offering, of course, is important because this lamb is being offered. 
It is not just being killed, but offered to God, which is, of course, a sacrificial word. A sacrifice is something that is being offered in worship to God, offered to him as a service of some kind. And the Passover is specifically called a sacrifice in verse 27 of this chapter. Just see that over the page. In verse 27, when the children say to you, now we'll look at the all of the children too, God willing, next time. When the children say, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord. It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord. So this lamb is definitely being slain as a sacrifice. And that tells us, first of all, just as I alluded to a moment ago, that it is substitutionary. And it's not just that we understand that, but Israel themselves understood that too. Without understanding that, it just becomes a thing to do, or just an instruction to be followed, which just reduces them to the level of unthinking, unfeeling people, just obeying a set of instructions that they have no clue about and no understanding of. That's not how God's people are. That's not how God deals with God's people. That, that just doesn't do justice to what they think and understand. They know that this lamb, just like every lamb from the days of Abel onwards in Genesis 4, this lamb represents the one who is going to die for them, their saviour and their deliverer. And the fact of the matter, which we certainly can see, is that this lamb that dies for us is God's firstborn. The Lord, as I mentioned last week, giving his firstborn as a substitute for Israel's firstborn. How wonderful and glorious that is. We would think that the death of a firstborn, rightly so, would be a terrible and a fearful and an awful thing. But on this night in Egypt, when everyone is experiencing it, we are to remember too that God himself had to inflict death on his firstborn for the deliverance of all of us who are tonight Christians. We are Christians because God slew his firstborn instead of you and me. So this lamb was offered as a substitutionary sacrifice. And of course, a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. To atone for it. To deflect God's wrath from those who should have received it. It's always important to remember that in God's universe, sin must be punished. It's never an option not to punish it. For God to leave it unchecked would mean that not only would he cease to be himself, but the whole universe itself would collapse into utter chaos. Justice must prevail, truth must prevail, sin must be punished. And so sin will either be punished in you or in someone else on your behalf. Someone who agrees to stand for you and to take that punishment for you. And that's why this sacrifice is what's called in the scripture a propitiation. A propitiation is something that deflects wrath or deflects anger. And the fact is that the anger that should be concentrated on the house of Israel that night was concentrated on the lamb itself. The anger that should be on you was concentrated upon Christ at Calvary. That is why he's such a great saviour and so esteemed by everyone who has come to know and believe what he was doing that day when he hung upon a cross. He hung there for our sakes. And that's what I meant last week by saying that the angel of death, in reality, is visiting every home in Egypt that night. It's just that in the house of Israel, he visits the firstborn. He visits Christ in a type, in a picture, and therefore it doesn't fall upon 
Israel's firstborn or Israel herself as God's firstborn nation. Now then, let's look at the Lamb itself. And when I say that, I mean the Lamb on its own, absolutely apart, not taking into consideration any other part of the sacrifice at all. Because no other part of the sacrifice uh, really belongs to the Lamb in the same way. The other parts are really accompaniments to the sacrifice. You have the unleavened bread and the herbs. But the unleavened bread and the herbs don't really speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. They speak about us coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Paul makes that plain in the New Testament. They're to do with us and not really with him. Then again, the way that they were to eat the sacrifice, which is so specified, they're to be belted round the waist, uh, their feet shod, shoes on, staff in their hands because they're ready for a journey. Also, that doesn't have to do, or these things don't have to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. They have to do with the people who were partaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they say something to do with the Christian life. Something to do with our pilgrim's progress, not to do with the Lord Jesus. So we will look at them, God willing, next Sabbath night. Our attention tonight is on the Lamb and just on the Lamb alone. And I think it might be helpful. There are different ways of looking at this, and I think they're all helpful in their own way. But for myself, anyway, I came to the conclusion that perhaps the best way to consider the lamb was to consider its flesh and its bone and its blood as three constituent parts that are brought before us in the passage. The flesh and the bone and the blood, all bringing our Saviour to our attention. Now the first part is the flesh and the thing that strikes us right away about the flesh is that the whole of it is to be burnt. In verse 9 they're told not to eat this flesh raw or rare nor boiled with water at all, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. Now that immediately sets this sacrifice apart from other kinds of sacrifice. Now, God willing, as we make our way through this book, we think of the tabernacle and sacrifices and other things of that kind, I'll say more about that in due time and in the proper place. But this burning of the entire animal defines this kind of sacrifice for us. It is the sacrifice that's called in Scripture a burnt offering, which is different from the peace offering, uh, different from the meal offering, different from the sin offering. It is the burnt offering. When the Jews translated the Old Testament into Greek, a couple of hundred years before our Saviour was born, when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, the word that they used for translating burnt offering was holocauston, the word holocaust. Now, of course, that's come into popular usage since the Second World War because of how the Jews saw themselves essentially as being offered up the word means not simply to be burnt up, but to be burnt up completely. That's a holocaust. Entirely consumed. Utterly consumed. That's what made the burnt offering distinctive. The other offerings had parts of animals or other things being offered. But this is the only offering where the entire animal is consumed. Now, the burnt offering... Uh, carries two 
distinct ideas. The first is that it is dealing with sin. Now this could become complicated, but I'm, like I said, I'm not going to go into it at the moment. The fact is that there is another offering called a sin offering. Let's just leave that to the side at the moment. But the burnt offering itself had that element in it. It was dealing with sin. As we'll see in a moment, it's dealing with something else too. There's a very important teaching in it, but it certainly was dealing with sin. And insofar as it is dealing with sin, it is telling us that the entire the entire part of this representative is suffering on account of sin. His head, his legs, and the word entrails, which is really the inward parts. And that reminds us that the suffering of Christ is not just intensive, but it's extensive. It goes through his whole being. There's not a part of our Saviour that doesn't feel the full force and the full fury of being the sin-bearer of his own people. He suffered for our sins in the flesh, in his soul and in his body. He suffered for sins. So this is telling us that he is a sin-offering, entirely suffering for sin. But second, as well as being a sin-offering, the burnt offering was at its heart, an offering of dedication or consecration. That's the leading idea in the burnt offering. Devotedness to God. That's, uh, I suppose, what we think of very often in connection with baptism, when you baptize a child, or interestingly, when you yourself were baptized as a child. If you were baptized as a child, you were consecrated to God. What you've done with that, I don't know. I hope you've taken that seriously. I hope you've come to live that out because the fact of the matter is, whatever we think of that, God will judge us one day as people who were consecrated to himself, even as children. And the responsibilities of that and the privileges of that will either count for us or against us on the day of judgment. Baptism is a consecration. The burnt offering is a consecration to God. And that again tells us that the entirety of our Saviour's life and ministry, and especially his walk up to Calvary, is a consecration of himself to God. His head, what he thought, his legs, where he went, his inward parts, how he felt, everything is entirely devoted to God in his life and in his death. As we saw last week, he could say in his life, to do thy will, I take delight, O thou my God that art. From his youth he said so. Coming into the world, it was written in the volume of the book, to do thy will, I take delight, and he did. Even when it was hard, even when he had to learn obedience in the crucible of suffering, still he took delight. And in death, it was the same. We're told that as he took the decision in his head to walk with his legs, to present himself a sacrifice, he gave his cheeks to those who plucked his beard and he gave his back to those who struck it. It's the voluntariness of it. They did the affliction. They're the ones who beat him. They're the ones who manhandled him and abused him and spat upon him and struck him. But he nonetheless gave his cheek to those who pulled the beard out of it and his back to those who struck him. Entire consecration to God. And at no time could we say that he was not consecrated. Every step of the way was willing. <coughs> willing because of the God whom he loved and the sinners whom he loved too. It's worth pointing out it's well worth pointing out that when we are called to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to give ourselves sacrificially for him, it's 
It's worth pointing out that the sacrifice that we are called to give is, guess what? A burnt offering. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, Paul says, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. How do you do that? Well, he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Don't conform, don't take the shape of the world, but be completely changed, transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may discover that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. The key expression for us right now is that expression, your bodies. I beseech you that you present your bodies, our entire bodies, every part of us, And he doesn't even mean our bodies as distinct from our souls. In fact, the point he is making is that we give our body as well as our soul. It's not just a case of saying, let my soul, O Lord, be consecrated to thee. But let my hands be thine. Let my feet be thine. Let my lips be thine. And my eyes and my ears. Every part of the body you gave me. Let it, with my soul, be laid on the altar as a living sacrifice to you. That he calls a reasonable service, a rational worship. And in what respect is that a rational worship? Well, it's essentially because of what he did for us in giving his body a burnt offering. And these burnt offerings are not comparable. What was asked of him in giving himself holy to God was so much more than what's asked of you and me in giving ourselves holy to Christ. For him to give himself to God on our sake took pain and grief and anguish. For us, it's a joyful, cheerful obedience to the lover of our souls. So, It is a burnt offering. It is for sin. And it is a voluntary consecration of himself. But it's important too to note the method by which the offering is made. It's by roasting. Specifically, we are told, it must be a roasting by fire. A roasting by fire. Now, It's not justifiable to say, well, the thing has to be cooked anyway, because obviously it was an option not to cook it, or it was an option to cook it some other way. But the fact of the matter is that the Lord says not to do that. Now, if the Lord says not to do it, then the way in which it is done must have significance. It must be of symbolic importance. Don't eat this rare, he says. And don't eat it boiled, but eat it roasted in fire. Why? Well, surely, friends, it's because that the Lord wants to convey to them and to us that this substitute suffers. This substitute suffers. And it's not just any suffering, because in Scripture, the suffering of fire is always related to the wrath of God. It's always related to the wrath of God. So the the fire to which the substitutionary lamb is exposed is the anger of God, his just reward. It's the blaze of his holiness against the impurity and uncleanness of our sin. A sin that would be there forever in us were it not dealt with by the substitutionary lamb. So it is God's wrath that falls on his own firstborn simply because he stands for us. And of course we are conscious that it is that wrath that falls upon Christ. The pains of hell took hold on me. I found grief and trouble. It actually occurred to me and uh, it occurred to me that there's a sense in which you could apply um, a sense in which you can apply 
even the words of the rich man who was lost of course and who went to hell <clears throat> the man who feared sumptuously every day and clothed in purple and who didn't care about the beggar who was at his doorstep when he of course went to hell he famously said that I am tormented in this flame but could our saviour not say that could our saviour not say the same words when he hung upon the cross experiencing the fire of the wrath of God were these not the torments of hell we cannot think of hell really in a sense as consisting of anything else it certainly consists of our own sin unchecked sins against each other sins against God but the pain there the misery there is a direct affliction of God's wrath against sin his justice against sin I am tormented in this flame. As I often quote from the liturgy of the Greek Orthodox Church, by thine unknown sufferings, O Lord, deliver us. That's just an expression that makes very plain that these sufferings are unknown by us. And in fact, we can say unknowable. Unknowable. Unknown and unknowable. So the death of Christ is represented in this passage not just by the killing of the Lamb but by its roasting by fire. I'm conscious that in the type the roasting by fire takes place after the animal dies but that's just a necessity because of the deficiency of the type. In reality, both the killing and the roasting are both to be understood as the sufferings of Christ, a whole burnt offering and a sin offering too. The second part of the lamb to consider is the bone. In chapter 12 and verse 46, the Lord says that no bone in this lamb is to be broken. No lamb, no bone in the lamb is to be broken. Interestingly, the psalmist refers to this too, which we'll sing a little later on. We're told that the troubles that afflict the just in number many be, but yet at length out of them all the Lord doth set him free. He carefully his bones doth keep whatever can befall that not so much as one of them can broken be at all. Quite an amazing statement. Speaking about the Christian real, that not one of his bones can broken be at all. Now I'm sure you know that there's a New Testament reference to Christ's bones not being broken. And the scriptures are so accurate. They're, they're always so accurate. Uh, we're told uh, for example in Psalm 22 which we read there we're told of Christ's prayer on the cross. Part of that prayer said that all of my bones out of joint do part. Notice he doesn't say they're breaking. They're dislocated. The shoulder bone would certainly dislocate. But isn't it interesting how accurate it is? They all out of joint do part. But John, when he writes his gospel, draws our attention to the fact that not a bone was broken. The Jews were in a hurry to get the crucifixion over with for their own reasons to do with the Passover. And they got permission to afflict the, the three who were crucified, the Lord and the two thieves, with what was called the crurifragium, or the breaking of the bones. And that involved taking a heavy iron bar and smashing the thigh bones of the people who hung there just to hasten their death. We're told that they did that in connection with the two thieves. But when they came to Christ, they saw he was dead already. Notice the superintendence of God over everything, just over everything. And so they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, which obviously uh, went between the hip bone and the, and the ribs and pierced the pericardium, but did not still break a bone 
Immediately blood and water came out. These things were done that scripture would be fulfilled. And what scripture does John quote? Not one of his bones shall be broken, he said. He also said there was another scripture fulfilled. They shall look on him whom they have pierced. That's a reference to the spear. But this is the one that interests us just now. John recognised a scripture being fulfilled that not one of his bones shall be broken in spite of the beatings and the abuse and the spear in his side. No bone broken. Yes, but why? Why? What does that represent? Well, sometimes when I'm preparing a sermon, which I always find very difficult to do, um, sometimes my wife periodically asks me how it's going and I will say well I haven't broken the back of it yet or sometimes I might say well I think I've broken the back of it and I suppose my face will reveal which one it is at any given time what does breaking the back of it mean? well until its back's broken it's putting up a resistance of some kind but once the back's broken it's finished that's it And the Lord's bone not breaking is a vivid picture of the fact that his mission is intact. His will is not changed. Nothing in his heart has yielded. Nothing has deflected from his course. He may be battered, bruised and bleeding, but the resolve is still there. The purpose is still there. The strength is still there. He has not been broken. It's an experience to shatter anybody. But he has not been broken by it. He remains who he always was. He remains in his strength and he remains in his purity. So the Lord says, see to it. When you roast this lamb that you don't break a single bone. To represent my son's strength through his suffering. So not a bone shall be broken. And I think we can safely say when the psalmist applies that more generally to Christians in Psalm 34 verse 20 he carefully his bones doth keep. I think it is effectively saying the same thing to us that our experiences which are so difficult will not crush us. Will not break the vertebrae. Will not break the spine. We will remain because the Lord will see to it that we remain steadfast and loyal in our purpose. The third thing, of course, is the blood. Now that is more complex and involved, and again there are parts of this that I want to leave until we come to the tabernacle and to the offerings. But the key text, I suppose, that governs it is Leviticus 17.11, where we're told that the life is in the blood. We're sometimes prone to think of the blood as just an evidence of death, a statement of death. There's the blood, <clears throat> the animal has died. But in fact, the, li- the blood doesn't just speak of death, it speaks of life actually too. It speaks of life. Much later on, well, not, not all that much later on, instructions were given in connection with the Day of Atonement, how the high priest again was to kill the animal and how he was to take the blood. And on this one day of the year, something special was done with that blood. It was taken into the Holy of Holies, uh, where God's presence was actually enthroned there on the Ark of the Covenant. The The high priest would take that blood into the presence of God. Is that blood an evidence of death well yes it is that is that all it is no that's not all it is that blood is life that blood finds its proper fulfilment when our Lord's soul is dismissed on the cross of Calvary his body is lifeless on the tree but in goes his soul into the very presence of God for acceptance by God himself, the judge of all the earth, including the judge of his own son. 
The life is in the blood. That's why Paul says that if we are saved by his death, we shall also be saved by his life. That's a very interesting statement, which it's very easy to, to, to gloss over, but he says it in, in Romans 5, and in verse 10. <clears throat> well, he says, Having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's reminding us that blood says, yes, there was a death, but there is a life still. This is the blood of someone who died. This is the life of someone who was dead, but now lives. And lives to do what? Well, lives forevermore to make intercession for us. And, and if that person died for us, then certainly in his life with God, he'll make sure that we live and flourish and do so forevermore. That's what the blood is. It is the life or the soul of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice that this blood is first of all poured out. Now, no attention is drawn to that in the passage, I admit but that's just because it's taken as a given. When the animal's throat is cut, the blood is poured out. That is true of the Lamb of God. And although the throat of the animal, the throat of the Lamb was cut by others, and so was the Lord's body cut by others, nonetheless, it's his own offering. Like water, he says, I am poured out. Well, that's passive. I am poured out. But then Isaiah says, he poured out his soul unto death. Now, isn't that an interesting expression? He poured out his soul unto death. Poured it out. It reminds us that no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. And so when he says that like water I'm being poured out, he's conscious that, that his life is leaving him. But he's giving it. He's giving it. And he's giving it for our sakes. And as well as being poured, of course, this blood is then sprinkled on the doorposts and on the lintel. And it's at that point that the house is safe. And not till then is the house safe. Because God says, when I see the blood, of my firstborn, when I see the blood of my firstborn, I will pass over your door in mercy. His mercy passed over Pharaoh, but his judgment passes over God's people. So what saves you, really, is not the shedding of blood on its own, is it? It's the application of that blood to you. And so you need tonight, friend, if you haven't already done so, to take this blood and apply it to your own heart, where it needs to be applied, to your conscience, just to your inward person. Take it and apply it with hyssop. Hyssop was probably one of the bitter herbs that they were eating along with the Passover, and that's why it was gathered. And in the Bible, it seems that hyssop represents what is very lowly and humble. We're told when Solomon, for example, became an expert in, uh, in zoology and botany and all these other things, that we're told that, that he mastered um, plants and trees. We're told from the lowly hyssop in the wall to the cedar of Lebanon. He made them the object of his study and reflection. That's, that's telling us what the hyssop is. Just low and insignificant. It seems to be the case that, that the way it is means that you could just take it and use it to, um, to sprinkle something on, which they did here. They, they sprinkled the blood. But if it represents something, then to us surely it represents just that, the humility and the gratitude that we have when we call upon Christ to, um, to save us 
to protect us from the angel of death. It's, it's in all humility that we appeal to his blood and the power of his blood to give us life, to communicate the life of God to us and to protect us from death and from eternal condemnation. Ask God to apply it. Do thou with his upsprinkle me, and I shall be cleansed so. Ye wash thou me, and then I shall be whiter than the snow. And, you know, when you plead, when you plead, when you ask God, you confess your sins, as David did in that Psalm 51, I confess them. On that basis, he says, purge me, cleanse me. When that blood is then sprinkled on your heart, your heart effectively becomes a refuge from death, a safe refuge from death and destruction. And that's irrespective of how you feel about it. I'm very conscious, I mean, I remember this myself, that when I, when I first, I think, yielded myself to the Lord, I, I, I didn't feel changed or different, although events proved that I was changed and different, but I didn't feel it. And in fact, very often, and subsequent to that, I've often wondered and lacked assurance and lacked strength. But this is not to do with subjectivity. It's very objective, this. You can imagine for yourself two families in the Israeli homes that night. Think of the groans and the cries as the angel of death is making its way through the whole of the country. And you have two families, and in one family... The whole family are discussing the possibility that there's something wrong, that the blood's not going to be enough, or just maybe, maybe the angel of death will call at the house and take away the firstborn. In the other house, there's none of that conversation. There's just gratitude and thankfulness to God for the amazing provision that he has done and the blood that is sprinkled. But there's no difference between the two houses in terms of their security and their life. They're both safe. One lacks assurance, the other doesn't, but they're both safe. Why? Because they've pled the blood of Christ. They've asked the Lord to cover them. They've asked the Lord to have mercy on them. And that's their liberation. That's their safety. That's their security because of the blood of sprinkling. We're not saved because of the strength of the house. We're not saved because of the strength of our faith. But we're saved because of the power of the blood. One last, last thought, friends, before we leave this, and I'm sorry, that's a difficult one. And it's one that I, I can't, I just have to admit that I can't resolve it myself. And to that extent, I, I leave it with you. I, I need to pray for further light on it myself, but I just want to present it to you. And it's to do with this basin in verse 22. It only appears once. Moses says, you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. Well, twice in the one verse. Now the reason there's a difficulty here is because this is one of these Hebrew words that has two completely different meanings. <clears throat> now, all languages are full of words like that. English is full of that. I mean, if I said to you, for example, that I'm going to lie, what do you think I'm saying? Um, of course, the context will always tell you. For example, if, if the next word is down, I'm going to lie down, you know what I'm going to do. But if I had just left it at lie, you might have thought I was going to tell a falsehood. But the context, 99 times out of 100, the context tells us which word it is. But sometimes it doesn't. And this is one of these rare occasions where we're left with a conundrum. Because the other meaning of the word for basin, believe it or not, is doorstep or threshold. In fact, that's the way this word is translated most times in the scripture. A threshold or a doorstep. And isn't that a remarkable thing? Because the blood is applied anyway to the lintel at the top and the two doorposts, there's no mention 
of the threshold and the doorstep. Unless this is a mention of the threshold and the doorstep. I wonder if the word means the doorstep. Uh, some say that it can't be a reference to that because the blood would then be walked on and trampled on. But you notice that Moses says that nobody's going to enter or leave the house for the rest of the evening. If it is the doorstep, then what we effectively have is the whole door covered with blood. Two doorposts, the lintel, and indeed the threshold. Now, when Christ, Christ dies, he dies, of course, at the Passover. He dies during the Passover. And although Israel had long ceased to put the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel and maybe on the step, still we can't forget that it was there that night. And on the cross, there's no doubt that the Lord is fulfilling the saying that I am the door. That cross, as I've described it before, is a kind of portal into another kingdom, into another house, to another country, to another universe. You pass through that cross and you find yourself in God's household and in God's family. And as Pink pointed out, who always has, I think, very um, spiritual insights into things, you, you have our Saviour with the blood on his head, you have the blood on his two arms as they're stretched out, and you have the blood at his feet. Stretched out in the four directions. As much as to say, and you, you consider the fact that this is happening as the Passover lambs themselves are being slain. Is there an allusion there to the fact that the Passover lamb that's being slain is actually providing the very blood that guards the household of God and ensures the protection of all who come to God through him. Because inside of Christ, you are in the shelter and the covering of the blood. And even if that is not meant as a symbol here, it certainly functions as a picture. And a wonderful, glorious picture of what the blood of Christ does protecting his people from the wrath of God. As William Cooper said, thy mansion is the Christian's heart, thy dwelling place secure. That is a way of saying that the blood is placed here, um, which is absolutely immune then from the wrath of God. You may, you may suffer much in your heart, but the wrath of God won't come near it as a Christian. And even if God gives you a bitter thing, there's no anger in it. Sorry, there's no, there's no wrath in it of that kind. None at all. Maybe it's better for me to say, it's better for me to say that there's only chastisement in it, not punishment. You will never, ever be punished as a child of God, just chastised. Well then, friends, let me just leave it at that. We've seen the lamb prepared and the lamb offered. Let's next time look at those who come and how they come, the bread and the bitter herbs. May the Lord bless your meditation on this word. Let us pray. <coughs> Lord, we are thankful that there is a blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. We are thankful for every application of it. Each time we come in the name of Christ, we are pleading this sacrifice. We are asking for a fresh sprinkling, and so we receive it. And how wonderful to know that when we ask, even now, that you would forgive our sins for Christ's sake, so these sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. You are righteous and just in so doing. And grant, O Lord, that we would not lose our wonder at these things, that we would retain gratitude to God uh, for his wonderful gift, a provision 
of a blood offering in his own firstborn. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. <coughs> We'll bring our service to a close by singing one of these psalms that I refer to, Psalm 34, and at verse 18, Psalm 34, at verse 18, the Lord is ever nigh to them that be of broken spirit, to them he safety doth afford that are in heart contrite. Troubles that afflict the just, in number many be, but yet at length out of them all the Lord hath set him free. He carefully his bones doth keep, whatever can befall, but not so much as one of them can broken be at all. Uh, the last four stanzas, let's stand and sing them. Fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.